You've worked in some really big cases. Lance Armstrong, Sun Yang, Alberto Salazar, Balco. Well, you can throw in Essendon as well. <laughs> is it motivational coaching? Is it what good coaches do? Or is it emotional abuse? It shouldn't be a world where in order to achieve your athletic goals, you have to put up with emotional abuse. Just like if you want kids to love sport and succeed in sport, you shouldn't feel like you got to dope in order to have a chance to succeed. The great thing about sport is that it disarms audiences. What we do is we look after people that have survived trauma in institutions and uh, generally speaking it takes a long time for a person to come forward to share that trauma and when they do come forward, well that's a big effort. I suspect the reason why people are coming forward now is that they feel confident that they will be listened to. to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Our mission is to protect the integrity of sport and the health and welfare of those who participate in Australian sport. Hello and welcome to Onside, the official podcast for Sport Integrity Australia. I'm Tim Gavel. Our podcast provides listeners with an opportunity to learn about integrity issues through athletes, coaches and administrators, talking about contemporary and historical moments. On this episode, we'll be joined by two leading sports lawyers, Richard Young and Adair Donaldson. Sport Integrity Australia's 2023 annual update is out later this month. The course is for athletes, support personnel and other members of the Australian sporting community to highlight changes to the World Anti-Doping Agency prohibited list, as well as providing other integrity information that is vital to know in 2023. In other news, Sport Integrity Australia will be sending a team member to Interpol on a secondment to share knowledge and help with the development of a united approach to getting ahead of the global match-fixing threat. And we'd like to congratulate our sports engagement team members, Richard Nicholson and Petraea Thomas, who are honoured by the University of Canberra for their contribution to the sports industry. And congratulations to Dr. Kira James, who was announced as the inaugural winner of the Ken Fitch Fellowship Award early this month. US lawyer Richard Young is a leader in anti-doping litigation. He was the lead drafter of the original World Anti-Doping Code and subsequent code amendments. And he's worked on doping cases against Tour de France winners Lance Armstrong and Floyd Landis. Marion Jones and the Balco doping scandal. He has worked on the Essendon supplement case. He served on the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Richard has also been involved in drafting and enforcing safe sport rules for sporting organisations. Richard, um, welcome to One Side. You've, you've done many cases. Uh, you've been really working in this space for a long time now. Uh, firstly, can you tell us about your, your career in anti-doping and, and what led you down this path? So my background as a lawyer was as a commercial litigator, had some opportunities 30 some years ago to represent national sport organizations. One of my early opportunities was in the Quigley case where an American shooter named George Quigley had won a World Cup uh, and then tested positive and had his medal taken away, and it took a shooting spot away from 
the U.S. Olympic Committee. So they sent me over to CAS to appeal that. And it was one of the early CAS cases. And back then, the shooting rules said doping was the intentional use of a performance enhancing, of a prohibited substance with the aim of enhancing performance. And this is clearly a case where he got, he was sick as a dog, and the doctor gave him. Uh, a medicine called bronchophane with the label in Arabic and looked at the list and told him there was nothing prohibited. So it wasn't a doping violation. I mean, we've since gone to strict liability, but it wasn't then. And so um, he got his medal back and U.S. got his shooting spot back. And this was a high-profile case. And Cass said... You seem to understand this. Would you like to be one of our arbitrators? And so I was a CAS arbitrator for a while and ended up being on the ad hoc panels for Nagano and Sydney. And then I did more and more and more cases, either as an arbitrator or as an advocate. Decided I really shouldn't be both. And so I decided to be an advocate and resigned from CAS. And I did more and more cases and wrote rules for international federations and the like. And then when it came time to write the World Anti-Doping Code, they asked if I'd lead that effort. So, you know, I, I was a commercial litigator, but... Is it more fun to be a commercial litigator or is it more fun to be involved in sport in an area like anti-doping? When I'm passionate about clean sport, I got to be a pretty easy decision. So, you know, I had a chance to do what I really liked. You know, I'm with a great big law firm and most of my partners have to read the financial section of the paper first thing every morning. My job is to open up the sports page you know, you, you can't get much better than that. You've worked in some really big cases. Lance Armstrong, Sun Yang, Alberto Salazar, Balco. What, what has been the most interesting of those cases, do you think? Obviously, the Lance Armstrong was the highest profile. Yeah. Um, well, and throw in Essendon as well. <laughs> yes. I was going to ask you about the Australian element in a moment. Um I mean, and the Russian investigation, they've all, they've all been really interesting. Uh, none of them were sure win cases. Uh, and so, you know, a case like an Armstrong case is a little like extreme skiing. If you fall, you die. Uh, and so the agency was seriously at risk. Um, I, I probably wouldn't pick a favorite. Um, they've all been really interesting i mean the, which one did you lose sleep over did you think oh, all, of them. all of them okay. <laughs> I mean, uh, it, it's funny as i've gotten older i i know more how much i don't know and so i actually do lose lose sleep i was a competitive tennis player in college and you know they're the matches that uh you know you're gonna win I don't have any physical symptoms. They're the matches where you know you're going to lose. I don't have any physical symptoms. It's the matches where you should win, but you could lose that I get the dry cough and have a hard time sleeping. You know, it's the same thing with some of these big cases. And, and it doesn't, 
it doesn't really bother me that I get that way. It's just this, that's what adrenaline does to my body. And I've learned from being an athlete that don't sweat it. You know, you'll be fine. You're fine as an athlete and you'll be fine trying these cases. Uh, did you get much pushback from your role in these cases? Um, well, probably the... If, if we would have... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm, I'm not, I'm not real welcome in China no, no. <laughs> because of Sun Yang. Oh, I was getting to that, yes. I'm, I'm not going back to Russia uh, because of role in the Russian investigation. Um, after the Essendon case, I sure got a lot of letters from Melbourne about how the result in that case had, had ruined somebody's father's life. Tell, tell us about your role in the Essendon case and what it meant to you to, to see it through. Um, well, it was interesting. You know, I'd done work for uh, ASDA and ASADA on different investigations and different things before. And it was, you know, Mr. Dank and his thymosin beta-4 and it involved Cronella, it involved Essendon. And so I worked a lot with Asada on both of those. And then we ended up representing WADA in the appeal in the Essendon case. And it was not a slam dunk case. You know, we, we thought it was a righteous case and good, and WADA thought it was a righteous case and good. And good lawyers on the other side. Um, and, you know, you, you, the, the sport was very concerned about the consequence to the sport. And our view was, look, under the code, this is what needs to happen. Yes. Much is said about the, the fact that uh, None of the players tested positive in a similar way, I guess, to Lance Armstrong in that for years he was tested yet never tested positive. And I guess that is a recurring theme in a lot of social media when it comes to Essendon, but there are many other anti-doping rule violations Yeah, as opposed to sort of simply testing right. positive. Right, and, you know, Lance said I was... I was tested 300 times and I never tested positive. The same is true with Marion Jones. Same is true in a lot of our big cases. Um, and that just means that they were very good at either being tipped off that the collectors were coming or in being very careful when and how they doped that it wouldn't be detected. I mean, for a long time, we couldn't detect. In fact, it wasn't until I think the Sydney Games that we started testing for EPO. And that was the drug of choice in the cycling community. So yeah, he just tested 300 times, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't tested for EPO effectively. So that, that's uh, yeah. not a real good, that's not a real good excuse. Now our best, our, our most significant cases are all non-analytical investigation cases. Does it surprise you that the Essendon issue continues to bubble along? Um, a little bit. I mean, 
it it's <laughs> it was uh, I mean books have been written about it. It was in the press pretty constantly. I mean it was a big deal. I mean Essendon Club was a major club. It you know it'd be like the Dallas Cowboys in American football and. You know, all but a couple of their players got suspended, and it, you know, the, it screwed up the competitive equity in the league and all that kind of stuff. But you know, to us, we had to deal with it. Is were the rules violated or weren't they? Moving away from anti-doping onto abuse, because you also work in the abuse of athletes in sport, and you've done a number of high-profile cases. In that area as well, yeah, and and a lot of low, of low profile cases too. Um, what range do you go through? What what sports? Is it every sport? So there's a there's an interesting dynamic. Um, there is sex abuse, if you I mean, or bullying or emotional abuse in every sport, because there is all of those things in society. And I would guess that, you know, the prevalence of sex abuse in Australia is about the same as the United States. You know, we have same cultural background. Um, you know, we don't we we wouldn't tolerate that as a society, and yes, and yet it still occurs. Center for Disease Control in the U.S. has said that something like one in six women and one in ten men will be sexually abused by the time they're eighteen usually in the home or uncle or other people like that or in school or in church or in club, but it happens in sport too. And so like it or not, that's a part of sport and we have to take it really seriously. Um, and what, what I have observed is that one of the biggest problems is that people don't report. And they don't report because they don't think anybody's going to do anything about it or they think they're going to be re-victimized in the process or that, um, you know, you have to go through this formal process of reporting. And so it's only if you are an eyewitness to the act that you report as opposed to... I think there's something fishy going on. Would you guys please look at it? Uh, so all of that, I think, is the biggest problem. And what, what you find out to answer your question is the better job a sport does at convincing people to come forward, the more cases they're going to have. So if you look at a sport that has a lot of cases they're probably doing a pretty good job causing people to come forward. In my experience in swimming, you know, I don't know how many, I don't know how many minor athletes they have, but I'd guess close to 200,000 minor women. Well, statistically, there's going to be abuse in society in that level. And the minute we started really going after coaches and abusers hard. More people came forward. So there were yeah. lots of cases. Is it mainly coaches? Um, yes. Sometimes it's other athletes. Occasionally it's uh, 
an athlete support person. When you, you know, the, the, the worst case in the United States is Larry Nasser, the doctor in gymnastics. I'd never seen a doctor case out of hundreds. He was the first one. Didn't mean that they, like other athletes, poor personnel couldn't do it, but I was pretty shocked to see that it was a doctor as opposed to a coach or somebody else. Has the reporting system improved, do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Because a number of athletes had come forward before Larry Nasser was prosecuted many years beforehand. Yeah, the, the problem with the Nasser case was that he's, you know, he's licensed in, uh, in, as a chiropractor and other things like that. And if you go to the manual, there is something called um, pelvic floor manipulation that you use is actually a real treatment. And that's what would happen. I mean, the Michigan State Police were notified that this had happened to my daughter, and they come, and he shows them in the book where this is a legitimate treatment, and they say, oh, okay. I mean, that was it's real unique that way. It's different than... Because your daughter was a gymnast, wasn't she? Yeah, I mean, she wasn't, she wasn't abused, but no, she was, a, she was a, on the national team during... Well, Larry Nasser was the, was the doc. When you look at abuse and you say abuse... Most people think of sexual abuse, but there are other forms of abuse, aren't there? And, and that's where it becomes quite a grey area. Is it a coach trying to get the best out of an athlete? Is it direct abuse? Is it hard to prosecute? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, in a nutshell. And, and that will be one of the issues for Sport Integrity Australia is emotional abuse. Is it is it motivational coaching? Is it what good coaches do, or is it emotional abuse? And, you know, there, there are egregious uh, examples like coaches beating their athletes, physical abuse, um, but the emotional abuse gets tough. Uh, but you, you got to deal with the cases and bring them. Because it's if you want kids to be safe in sport, or you want any athlete to be safe in sport, it shouldn't be a world where, in order to achieve your athletic goals, you have to put up with emotional abuse. Just like if you want kids to love sport and succeed in sport, you shouldn't feel like you got to dope in order to have a chance to succeed. When athletes do bring abuse cases forward, Sometimes there is an element of disappointment that it doesn't go any further. How do you deal with that in that athletes feel let down by the system, yet you know, it's pretty obvious in your mind that it can't proceed legally? Um, it's a great question. And what happens is you want, <coughs> excuse me, you want the athlete to feel like they have really been heard one of the things that I'll be talking to people about while I'm down here is having an athlete advocate uh, that they can reach out to. Because your investigator is supposed to be neutral. Um, you know, I'm when, when I have sexual misconduct cases, 
involving a woman. I always have a woman on my staff doing the contact with her just so that there is, she perceives an empathy. Um, but having an advocate for them is important. Uh, making sure that, that the victim is kept apprised of the progress of the case so that they don't feel like it's been dropped or abandoned. And, and we've had, we've had cases where the panel found no abuse and the victim came to us and said, thank you. Thank you. So I mean, I'm not happy with that judgment, but thank you. Thank you so much for bringing this case and letting me have my day in court. And that's what you want. Sport Integrity Australia, of course, uh, has evolved from an anti-doping organisation to incorporate broader integrity issues, safeguarding in sport, sports wagering, etc. How hard is it, do you think, to, to bring them all together like this? Well, it's, a good, it's, it's hard. Um, and it takes resources. And dealing with uh, abuse cases is frankly a lot harder than dealing with doping cases because you don't have the code where we've tried to make things pretty black and white. Um, but if you are concerned, as a lot of people are rightly, that you don't want the fox guarding the hen house, you don't want the sport organization uh, guarding the hen house of anti-doping or you don't want them guarding the hen house of athlete protection. And if I'm talking to my clients who are sporting organizations, you don't want to be in that position. You really would like to have somebody else independent. So if you lose a case, it isn't because you punted it. It's because it wasn't the right case. If you don't bring a case, it wasn't because you were covering up for some world-class coach. It was because there wasn't a case. And they're not going to believe that if you're the sport, but people will believe it if it's independent. And so it just gets you out of that lose-lose box if you're a sporting organization. From your perspective, having dealt with so many abuse cases in the United States, do you feel as though, given that we've had a bit of a rise in the number of people coming forward in Australia alleging abuse. Is this the tip of the iceberg, do you think, in, in Australian sport? It will be for a while. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know all the Australian cases. I know, I've, you know, I've read the statements from Maddie Groves. Mm. Didn't come forward because she didn't think anybody would do anything about it. My guess is that when it's clear that Sport Integrity Australia is going to do something about it, then more people will come forward. You know, if if... If coming forward is going to mean you're just going to beat your head against a wall and re-traumatize yourself, why would you do it? It's That's the big problem, frankly, that people don't come forward. You want to create an atmosphere where it is conducive to their coming forward and they believe it will make a difference. And so when you do that, yeah, you're going to have... You're going to have that bulge in the boa constrictor's belly of cases. You know, I want to be, I want to, I now know it'll make a difference if I come forward. 
so I will. And that's what happened in the US, didn't it? When people started coming out, there was a, a rise in the number of people emerging and, and seeking justice. And now, and now it's, uh, it isn't at the, at the same high level that it was. And it depends on and how you write your rules and what happens and who has authority to do what uh, for old cases. You know, I mean, the ones that are the ones that are troublesome are, say, a coach who's been a predator, multiple clubs in the past, but he hasn't done anything under the new legislation. Somebody's got to deal with that guy. Uh, and how that fits in with Sport Integrity Australia or whether that's thrown back to the sport again, I don't know. But if you want to have credibility, somebody's going to have to deal with that old situation. Yes, historical issues are a you know, huge issue, but I guess the framework has been in Senate place, the National Integrity Framework, provides sports with an avenue going forward framework going forward, a set of guidelines, which is important to stop it happening in the future. Clearly, clearly. And, and you know, whether Sport Integrity Australia gets involved in investigating old cases in agreement with the sport, I mean, that's going to be David's call on resources. Um, but, you know, what you need to do is to create confidence in the victims of the world that somebody's going to do something about this if I come forward. Good on you, Rich. Thanks very much for coming and uh, speaking to the people here at Sport Integrity Australia. Very committed to uh, ensuring that the integrity of sport is protected and that athletes are protected as well. And thank you very much for coming down. You bet. My pleasure. And I'm, I'm, I'm really impressed with the dedication and commitment of the people you've got working here. You're listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Hello and welcome back to Onside. We've been joined by Adair Donaldson. Adair is the director at the Australian law firm Donaldson Law. He specialises in assisting survivors of trauma. He works closely with sporting bodies, addressing cultural issues with respect to harassment, abuse, violence and alcohol-related issues. Adair, um... Being in the inner circle, so to speak, hearing stories from athletes and sports firsthand, how do you see sport as being a positive driver in bringing about cultural change? So, Tim, first of all, my background, uh, I'm a lawyer uh, based in uh, regional Queensland, and I suppose what I was seeing at the coalfront was, or the coalface, was that that uh, you're seeing these young people that are making really poor decisions in relation to alcohol, drugs, sex, fights, motor vehicles, those sorts of things. And that's what we're facing, that we're facing these issues as a society. And uh, an opportunity presented itself back in 2007, 2008, where we developed an educational resource to really challenge audiences to, you know, to address these issues. And uh, that was when the NRL came knocking. And... Uh, since 2008, I've been working with the NRL and assisting them to develop their educational resources. And what I can say is that the great thing about sport is that it disarms audiences. So that what I mean by that is that um, when an incident occurs, and sometimes there's really poor mm. incidents that occur, that may make the front page of the newspaper, 
but it means that we're starting to have that conversation in relation to these issues and people may want to talk about it okay as a sporting issue but then if we start breaking it down we start having a wider conversation about what the impact is having in the community um, and for me that's really important i uh, I look at the NRL, um, and I may be biased here, but I certainly work uh, with a lot of sports. I certainly work with uh, a lot of schools and universities as well, and a lot of employers. And what I can say is that uh, um, the NRL is second to none when it comes to addressing these social issues. And they have to be. Uh, there's, let's not kid ourselves, because if one of these issues occur, then they know that they're going to be under a great deal of scrutiny. Um, but... So you'd like to think that they're doing it for altruistic reasons to bring about change, um, but they're also doing it for efficiency reasons as well because they know if they haven't got this under control that they are going to lose fans and they're going to lose sponsors, etc. It's going to have financial impact upon them if they don't get it right. But uh, certainly what I've seen over the years... Um, uh, so if we go back to 2008, I think back in 2008 very few people were talking about consent back in 2008. Um, so the NRL has led the way with respect to developing resources about consent training and those types of matters, and then that has then uh, permeated into the wider community as well. Yeah. I, I'd imagine, too, as a lawyer, um, it, it's a very interesting time for you because there are different interpretations on abuse uh, and legally how does it stand up because we're see yeah. coaches on the sideline yelling out to their athletes. Does that constitute abuse? Yes, yes. So as a lawyer, I would imagine that that it's a very, very fine well, line for you, but very interesting at the same no, very, time. Very much so. And uh, the law has been evolving in that space with respect to uh, to abuse. But if I just come back and talk about the, the law evolving in other areas yeah. as well. So the law has changed, for instance, with respect to... to um, We've seen the law develop with respect to mobile phones and social media. We've seen the law develop with respect or change with respect to laws uh, regarding consent. And so as those laws have changed, what is what is the, the NRL has had to do to educate their athletes is to make sure that they're aware of those consequences. The other issue that I suppose is a big issue for athletes, and that is with respect to codes of conduct. Um, and we've seen the former Australian cricket captain fall on his sword as a result of breaching a code of conduct there. Um, a lot of people don't appreciate that in nearly every contract in the land, every employee in the land is bound by a code of conduct these days. And it talks about that you will not bring your employer into disrepute, you know, not only during work hours but outside of work hours as well. So that's a pretty big issue. Um, and again, the only time that we start talking about those issues is when we see a, a sports person that gets, you know, falls foul of it. Yes. Do you find that, um, for instance, Athlete A was, was a driver yes. for people yes. coming out? And as we see more and more abuse cases and more and more cases of athletes transgressing and coaches transgressing, do you find that, that there is greater awareness down and people feel as though they've got a greater voice to, to come to people like right. you? Tim, it is um, one of the uh, the greatest uh, privileges that uh, that we've had um, is that we've been able to uh, look after those incredible women that came forward um, in the wake of Athlete A and called out the behaviours that had occurred in the past. Now, it took such courage for them to come forward and uh, I, I 
if I look back on those group of gymnasts and gymnastics in particular, is the wonderful thing that they had was this solidarity amongst them all. There wasn't just one person coming out and saying, hey, this is what's happened, and then leaving that person out there to be carrying the weight themselves. This was this group of incredible women that came forward and said, what happened to us as children should never, ever have happened, and it needs to be changed. Now, in the wake of them coming forward, we've seen what happened. We've, we've seen that the steps that the Sport Integrity Australia has taken. We've seen the... the um, the redress scheme that, that has been put in place by, uh, um, by the Australian government. So that, that the power of those women uh, and, and them coming forward and sharing their trauma has made such a big difference for others. And I can say uh, that those women are the most in, incredible and, and impressive women. Um, what they survived uh, and what they were put through as children, it should never have occurred. Um, and you would like to think that uh, there's other sports that are looking at what happened in gymnastics and they're saying, but for the grace of God, we weren't out there, but we should learn from that experience and we should make sure that we're implementing all those recommendations that came out of the different inquiries into our own sport. Um, that would be a really big start uh, because we can learn so much as a result of, of the gymnastics Experience. How did the athletes end up coming to you? How did these gymnasts know to go to a dead Olsen? Oh, <laughs> Tim, I, I suppose that over the years I've developed a um, a, uh, a reputation in that area of uh, standing up for athletes' rights, and uh, as a result of that, um, they reached out to me. And because it and is a trust thing, there. isn't it? It is a trust thing, and that's. Um, yeah, so what we do is we look after people that have survived trauma in institutions and uh, generally speaking it takes a long time for a person to come forward to share that trauma and when they do come forward, well, that's a big effort. You know, that's a big step for them to take and you're right, it, it, it involves uh, developing trust there um, and uh, I suppose what it makes is, from my perspective, um, it is very... Uh, it makes it very easy to do your job when you're looking after such incredible people that are strong, courageous, um, Are they looking for somebody to speak to? Are they looking for for redress, as you've mentioned? Are they looking to punish? No, What are they looking for? So one of the things, uh, a lot of people say that when people that have survived abuse come forward, it's all about money. Well, that's not what it is in my experience. Invariably, when a survivor comes forward that has uh, survived abuse in an institution, they're looking for four A's. And the four A's are the first acknowledgement, an acknowledgement of what happened. Uh, secondly, an apology. Thirdly, an assurance by them coming forward and sharing their trauma that is going to make a difference for others. And then finally, assistance. So you'll appreciate that when we talk about those young athletes that came forward, uh, you know, children, and some of them we're talking six, seven, eight years of age when it started, that they've got debilitating injuries as a result of what they experienced. Um, they're receiving no support at the moment. There's no support out there for them. So it's pretty important to make sure that there is going to be some assistance that's provided to them. Um, and the government has done that recently with establishing the, uh, the redress scheme that's available for people that went through, um, uh, through the Australian Institute of Sport. Um, 
So that's that's important. That was a that was a very positive step that was taken by the Australian government. But I'd like to see that rolled out to a far wider group. Given your experience, uh, is it the tip of the iceberg, or do you expect a lot more to be on its way? Uh, I think that we're talking about these issues. I think that uh, that more people feel comfortable coming forward now and sharing their uh, understanding or, or their experiences of, of what happened. Um, I think that we uh, you know, that 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 episode that happened with uh, gymnastics. What made that unique was that there was a large cohort of these women that had solidarity with each other. Each one of them had each other's back. That's what made it so incredible. They all came forward. It wasn't just one out. It was a group of um, uh, of former uh, gymnasts that came forward that said, hey, this is what happened. It wasn't good enough. There has to be change. So it was that solidarity. I think that that's quite unique. Um, we've seen other sports where it's, um, uh, for instance, in relation to swimming. It, it seems that with swimming, that they've done a, a recent investigation there. And I think that, that uh, to... Um, their credit, they came out and they have acknowledged that they have had uh, issues in the past. Um, but what we saw with swimming was it wasn't that group of, of athletes coming forward, banding together to tell their stories. The National Integrity Framework, do you see that as an important piece of work going forward in that at least sports now have an understanding of a framework and, and guidelines about their responsibilities? Oh, very much so. Uh, very much so, and that again is a, a very positive step to take, and that has been largely led by David. Obviously, he's got an incredible support team behind him, but David Sharp has led that, um, and I think that it's incredibly important for sports. Um, it gives sports a lot of comfort, I suppose, from a point of view that they know that there's an independent body that's going to be reviewing it, that mm. the complaints can go to, that it's going to be an independent investigation that that's then going to be held. So that's really that that is very important. Mm. Um, and w if, if we use other examples of how that has had success in other areas, um, I know, for instance, with the Australian Defence Force, uh, when they had allegations with respect to abuse and integrity and those sorts of things, that they set up an independent body that people could then make their complaints to. So I actually think that that is a really positive thing because, um, you know, from the sports body, you know, from the sporting organisation, it's got some comfort in knowing, well, there's going to be an independent body that's going to be reviewing us, you know, that's going to be holding us to account. That, that's quite important. Not everybody who feels as though they have been abused is going to get comfort from it, though. Let, let's no, be no, frank. they're not. And, and they not. might feel as though not enough action is they, taken. and So not everybody is going to be satisfied. And that's, that's going to be um, the case no matter what. We are not going to be um, – uh, there is going to be um, uh, a significant number of people that won't be happy with that process, but it's the best we've got and it's a far lot better than what we've had in the past. So that to me is uh, a really good step in the right direction. What do you see as the future? You know, Are we going to see – less abuse cases? Are we going to see more and more people come out and talk about historical abuse? Where do you see the future going? Well, first of all, I would like to think that, that um, 
Well, first of all, I, uh, I think statistics will show that more people will come forward mm. and report in relation to historical incidences. The reason for that is they're going to have the courage to come forward listening to other people and they'll say, OK, they now feel comfortable coming forward and sharing their trauma to make a difference. But that, that means that the system's working. That means that people feel comfortable um, and that they and safe in coming forward in reporting and knowing that it's going to be handled correctly. So that's a good thing. Okay, So mm. I would expect that there should be a, a spike. Um, but gradually that will then tailor off. Mm. Um, if you have a look, for instance, uh, I know that um, what happened over in the States with the... Um, uh, uh, in relation to the US Armed Forces, uh, they had um, they introduced a new body in relation to dealing with uh, uh, claims in relation to abuse and inappropriate behaviour. And they introduced it and then the statistics showed that the uh, incidents had been reported had trebled. And they said, listen, it mustn't be working, you know, because look, it's, it's just risen. It hasn't become um, better, it's got worse. And their response there was, no, it's actually got better because from a point of view that people now feel comfortable coming along and reporting. So I would like to think that there will be... Uh, I don't think anybody should be surprised if we do see a, a spike in, um, in people reporting abuse that has occurred, historical abuse that has occurred, um, and what that will show is that people feel comfortable coming forward and, and sharing yeah. their trauma. How should historical abuse be dealt with then? Um, we, we've had obviously yes. the Human Rights Commission um, have a look at a number of issues, but I just wonder how can historical issues be dealt with from a sporting perspective? From a sport, well, obviously there's a national redress scheme, which is. But, able if, it's, to but if it's not sexual abuse, yes. How, how can it be dealt with? Uh, well, which part of you looking at then? Okay, and, so, you know, so, so from a point a, of view. A coach is sort of forcing athletes to train and they're suffering lifelong injuries or they've got eating disorders, etc. Yes. So how, how, do you, how do you rectify historical abuse? Well, it depends what the, athlete, what the yeah. claimant is, is seeking. So a lot yeah. of claimants may well be seeking that they're after an acknowledgement and apology for what has occurred in the past yep. and an assurance that systems have then changed. Mm. Um, now, that, that's maybe what they're seeking. And uh, what will happen is if they're a minor at that point in time, they've still obviously got their, uh, all their rights to then pursue um, their entitlements. Um, now, what you're saying there is what happens if it's not sexual abuse? In some of the states, obviously, the legislation says that in relation to physical abuse that they may have suffered, okay, is still, um, is still able to be pursued against the organisation. From a police perspective, or no, no, not from a police perspective. From a uh, from a civil perspective, okay. obviously, people have still got their their rights in relation to their criminal claims yep. that they may, and they'll always have those. Mm. Um, but uh, you know, there is still. Um, I would like to think that uh, people that have uh, survived uh, abuse, physical abuse, uh, within. Uh, um, sporting organisations um, have got uh, significant options open for them to pursue rights now. Yeah. Where did athletes come to before you came on the scene or before people like you came on the scene? Did they just keep quiet? Oh, they kept quiet. Yeah. They kept quiet. Um, 
There is, uh, Tim, you're aware that over the, the last uh, three or four years, there's been some very high profile matters that have come forward uh, or, or that have been going through the courts in relation to allegations of serious abuse that has occurred. Um, and though they have resulted in criminal charges. Um, and I, I suspect the reason why people are coming forward now is that um, they feel confident that they will be listened to. It's, isn't that good? You know, because in the past that these people have just suffered in silence. Have you been surprised by the size of the issue when you first got that call from, say, a gymnast or a swimmer? No, I suppose it uh, doesn't surprise me because after being in this field for so long, um, you know, that... Uh, that um, where there's children, unfortunately, there has been abuse. Yes, but it seems as though it's everywhere at the moment, doesn't it? You pick up the paper and there seems to be an abuse case almost on a daily basis before yeah. the courts where previously there hadn't been uh, as much. And it was almost like a hidden problem, I guess, and I just wonder... You did, did, suppose, did, did you think, oh, no, possibly yeah. they're not going to come out and, and speak know, about I, it? I suppose for the last 25 years I've been uh, working in the space of assisting people that have survived abuse. Mm -hmm. So after 25 years you probably develop a, uh, an approach where you think, okay, well, there is going to be some bad people out there and that they will have done yeah. bad things. Um, and uh, you know, to me I come back to the fact that if we can be assisting and caring for people now and to be assisting them to to get through the trauma and that they feel as if they've been heard and they're getting an assurance that by them sharing their trauma that's going to make a difference for others, well, isn't that an incredible thing? You know, that these people can come forward and something that, that they walk away thinking, well, as a result of my sharing my trauma, I have made a difference for others. Well, it's good that they feel as though they've got somewhere to go to now. Yeah. Whether it be you or Sport Integrity Australia or whoever... They know yeah. they're going to be listened to. Yeah, and that's that's very positive. Adair, keep up the good work. Oh, thank, thank you so much, Tim. Thanks thank you. Hey, thanks for showing interest, Tim. And now for our segment from Left Field, where we answer a question from the public. G'day, I'm Riley, athlete educator with Sport Integrity Australia. Today's from Left Field question is who's responsible for keeping kids safe in sport? It's everyone's responsibility to keep kids safe. As a person involved in sport, you play a crucial role in keeping our kids safe. If you've experienced or witnessed poor behaviour in sport, you can make a complaint to Sport Integrity Australia via our website. You've been listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Send in your podcast questions or suggestions to media at sportintegrity.gov.au. For more information on Sport Integrity Australia, please visit our website, www.sportintegrity.gov.au, or check out our Clean Sport app. <laughs>